HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Severin, and this is Greenhorns Radio, coming to you live from San Benito County, where the mustards are blooming, and the quinces and the side rows are blooming, and the cactuses are all nubby down. Talking today to Ginger, who's in Oregon. Hi, Ginger. Hey, Severin. How's it going with you today? What's the weather like? Uh, Oregon is experiencing an incredibly warm and temperate winter. We've had like 60-degree weather and sunshine on the Oregon coast. So it's very unusual, but we'll take it. Uh, yes, this, this whole drought thing is happening on the West Coast. This drought thing continues to be happening. Um, what is the narrative that is, what is the narrative that is, uh, in your ears, in Oregon, how is it affecting southern Oregon? Well, Oregon is wet, you know, so we any drought for us, just is, especially where I am on the Oregon coast, is kind of a balancing force. So <laughs> we usually get 100 inches of rain, um, and we're down a little bit, but a dry spring for us would be good for our farming. Uh, California and uh, is the one that's really suffering. Uh, we were driving down there recently, and, you know, the mountains are not covered with snow, and the reservoirs are down, and, yeah, I'm I'm actually really grateful to be in Oregon right now, and I feel like I have absolutely no cause to complain about rain at all for the first time in a long time. <laughs> so, um, let's go right into your, your narrative, and uh, it was so wonderful to see you recently in Kentucky and beaming with joy and health and success at having started um, with pretty uh, implausible odds and, you know, really taking big risks and on a small scale going for it, hardcore, and now um, taking, on, taking on new forms, new institutional forms, like having succeeded to build a, a business around your dream. And maybe you could just give a, a summary version of where you – where you started from and, and how far you've gotten and, and how quick of time. 
Okay. Um, well, I'm a, just to give everybody some background, I'm a CSA farmer. Um, I've been farming for seven seasons now on the North Oregon coast. I have a, about five acres. Um, we run a 65-member CSA, and then we do wholesaling, and we do some farmer's markets locally. And then um, we added to our mix a couple of years ago some farm stays through Airbnb. So we started offering a couple of cabins on our off-grid farm up for uh, nightly rentals for people who are traveling uh, down the coast. And it was really successful. It became like the biggest income stream on our farm very quickly. It surpassed vegetables and as a profit stream. And it really opened our eyes to the potential for small acreage farmers to kind of have this income stream on their farm, uh, diversify what they're doing, build a, a group of people who come and stay with you and get really excited about your farm and your products and often will buy farm products from you as well as stay. Um, and it just became something we found ourselves telling a lot of other farmers about, like, hey, you should try this. If you have a, a way to put something on Airbnb, you should give us a shot. It's really amazing. It can really, you know, help fund your entire farm and your farm projects and your expansion and growth of your business. So with that in mind, we had an opportunity to purchase a property across the road from us. It kind of came about. The, the people who owned it have this beautiful little homestead farm. It's the original homestead for the old valley that we're in um, on the North Cor or in the Halem Valley. And um, we wanted to buy it. We didn't have the funds to do it. Uh, we, wanted, we saw the potential of doing more uh, farm stays. They have a really nice four-bedroom farmhouse. So we were talking with a, a group of people about how to fund this privately, and it turns out, you know, you can't just – I didn't realize this. I don't think a lot of people do, but it's actually illegal. and it, You can't just offer up investment into a project. You, could do, you can take money from your family, and you can take money – uh, from your close, close friends, but if you say you just want to go to your CSA members or, or people in your community and say, you know, I need this much money to buy this thing, it's actually technically illegal to do that. And we started to kind of wonder why that was, and it kind of led us down this path um, to learn about this new law that Oregon has just passed, and we became involved with it. Um, so we're one of the first farms to use this, uh, what they call community public offering, which is a new a new thing, a new way to finance, you know, projects and um, farm purchases and um, get investment money that isn't from a bank and isn't from uh, wealthy kind of accredited angel type of investors, but it's actually from your community or anybody, the public at large, can fund your project. So that's what we're doing right now. We're really excited about that process. We're in the process of fundraising with this new tool. So um, that was very succinct and effective communicating. Um, so uh, I guess the question I have is this new tool, this is direct public offering tool that is going to become a really useful tool for a lot of people who need to capitalize regional infrastructure, retooling farms, building, building farms, uh, scaling infrastructure uh, in organic world. Um, how, how did you discover this tool, and uh, what's been the process that you've been what's the process you've been going through um, to uh, fulfill its promise? So we actually found out about it at a at a little local farm conference up here on the north coast. There's a nonprofit in Oregon called Hatch, like uh, hatching an egg, um, and they were a nonprofit that helped write this new financial rule for Oregon State. 
15 other states have versions of this law. It's sometimes called direct public offerings. Um, they usually allow more money to be raised, like up to a million or two million dollars. Oregon decided to do a version of it that was more uh, user-friendly. It's an easier platform to use. It doesn't take a lot of um, long paperwork with the state. Um, and it's called crowdfunding or a community public offering versus a direct public offering. So it's a new version of this, and it's capped at $250,000. So you, that's, that's the amount you can raise uh, in one year period. And it, individual people can invest up to $2,500 a piece, but no more than that. So the way that they're protecting the investor uh, is by capping how much every individual can put in, and so you wouldn't lose your whole, you know, twenty thousand or thirty thousand dollars. The Securities and Exchange Commission kind of regulate investing in, in general for the whole country, and as states take on their own investment laws, the Feds have been a little concerned about how that's going to look, and it makes them a little nervous. It really is the ninety-nine percent kind of reclaiming Wall Street because. If you don't have access to investment capital, you're really relying on banks and credit cards and, and institutions that aren't community-based. You know, that money you're paying in interest or fines or fees or whatever is going out of the state and probably to a wealthy, you know, corporation. So to kind of create a system, a platform where communities can fund you and then they can get your uh, a financial return from your farm in the form of dividends or in the form of, you know, interest on a loan, and then use that money, that interest money, to then reinvest in other farms or, or reinvest just in any community thing that would just generally support the local economy is super radical in a way because it really changes the dynamics of where we get our money from and how the cash is flowing in society. Now it can be flowing in this kind of equal web design rather than an up-and-down flow, and farmers often find themselves, you know, at the, the lower portion of that kind of begging for any kind of capital we can get especially as you're trying to access land. So it's kind of the, the bigger version of a CSA. You know, it's like, yeah, we do get funded up front, and then we pay it back out in dividends or in, in repayment, but it's the capital that young farmers need to actually get onto property or to start the business rather than once you're already in production selling a CSA share, you kind of already jump the first hurdle, you know, the biggest one. Well, and, you know, just looking in terms of the institutional forms, like we live in this world that is so overpopulated with algorithms, um, most of which are algorithms that concentrate power and extract wealth from the community yeah. and aggregate that wealth into the hands um, of the owners of the algorithms, the owners of the hardware, the owners of the, of the finance, and that there are other alternative algorithms that perform the opposite function that are that are um, math and uh, uh, systems that distribute and re reorient the pathway of of the capital, and that we, uh, you know, we're not like so dumb that we can't figure out how those how to operationalize that logic. And yeah, so it's example, really been empowering as a as a young farmer to enter this world. And at first, I was pretty terrified to even talk about securities or you know, all these, like, convertible notes and all these things that I had no understanding of. I've never been an investor. My family didn't do that. We never had that extra capital, and it just wasn't part of my world. It isn't part of most people's world. You know, it's not something that most Americans do engage in. 
but it was really empowering to understand how it works, how you create value, how you sell shares. How, I mean, and it gave me a huge insight into why capital is kind of circling at the top and not coming down to the bottom. And it's because this hasn't been accessible to anybody but the top 1%. The top 1% can invest. They're accredited investors. If you're worth more than a million dollars, not including any property, uh, you can invest in anybody you like, so you have access to the system. So if you have a huge corporation and you're in the stock market and you're publicly traded, well, then the federal, the federal government is regulating you and anybody can invest in you. But if you're just in mom-and-pop you know, business or you're like 85% of the Oregon farms, which produce less than $50,000 in revenue a year and have less than you know, 50 employees, and I mean, we're mostly all small businesses, you don't have access to this kind of capital. So it's a way to go directly to your community and say, okay, can, you know, I need to raise $250,000, which is the case for me, to buy this property, to renovate it into a local food hub, to put in you know, a value-added kitchen facility so I can, I can pickle my beets and I can do all these things. I can create a little farm store that's there year-round. I can create a little bed and breakfast that's creating revenue for other pieces of the farm that need to be financed and pay my interns and all the stuff that we all need to do. Um, we found a little profit stream that makes sense. This tourism piece for us on the coast is really a, a win-win for everything, and it's really a market that's just ready to happen. So we, we're 90 minutes from Portland. You know, we, we've got the foodie capital of the world sitting right ne- next to us, and we're on a beautiful beach location. So we have this tourism opportunity, and we're trying to launch young farmers onto old dairy land that's sitting fallow because, you know, nobody can afford a 300-acre dairy and get onto, this, get onto the land. So we're trying to com, come up with innovative and creative ways that we can use community financing for the seed money to get access to pieces of property or at least leases on property through our local farm trust, which I'm also on the board of. Um, and so this kind of innovative ways of thinking about community financing and then, you know, financing actually is only part of it. Then when you get on, you have to make a profitable business so then you can pay back your investors so you have to kind of think about the whole process of giving young farmers the tools like agritourism or something that's going to be profitable enough that they can, you know, generate the interest from investors as well. So it's not a donation, you know. We're trying to create wealth all the way around, so we need to pay back out um, some of our, you know, profits. So it's an interesting thing well, to think about. It's, um, it's, it's different than just saying, well, here's some land, go for it, good luck with that. It's like, no, this whole thing needs to be set up to be profitable and sustainable from the very beginning, and and so it really makes you look at all the tools that you need to do that. And we're hoping that this first project, we're the first ones in Oregon to use it. We're the first ones to do agritourism in our area. So there's a lot of, like, firsts and proof of concept kind of things going on with our farming. It's very exciting. It's a little nerve-wracking. Uh, but we figure if we can do it and then we can be a model for other farmers to come and look at and see how we did it and ask questions and figure out some version of it that might work for them and then to help them with that process through our farm trust, um, you know, access to land and access to capital through this new uh, law. Well, thank you, Ginger, for doing that and for making yourself available so energetically and um, with such clarity to, to help interpret your methodologies and approaches and, you know, just how it feels to be uh, an edge dancer like that. The, the thing that really um, occurs to me in how powerful it can be when you are including a larger number of people 
in your farm system uh, as community investors, as participants in an agritourism uh, agritourism business on your farm is that you increase the number of stakeholders and relationships, which gives you a greater complexity, a greater, hopefully, set of skills and um, uh, resources, human and otherwise, that make you more resilient and who many of them have interests that, are, that go beyond the food and go beyond the money. And I wonder if you can reflect on maybe the character, uh, more than the dollars, but the character of that greater density of human interest, uh, excitement, and knowledge that swirls around when you have just more brains and bodies uh, connected to what's happening on the land. Oh, definitely. I mean, the real capital that we're generating is community here. I mean, that's the key word, is we, the, the security and the, and the capital rests in as many people that are connected to your farm and care about your farm and care about what you're doing as possible. You know, money in the bank is, is one thing, but when you have people out there who are energetic supporters and then they tell their friends to come and stay with you and they have an experience, it's really, I mean, until you, reach people and, you know, they, they actually go out into your farm and they see your food growing or maybe they bring their kids out and their kids have an experience for the first time of seeing food come out of the ground instead of a grocery store. All these things we kind of take for granted as farmers, but people are hungry for them. I mean, they're really, and that's a, a pun not intended there, but really um, if people become more technological and more focused on looking at their phones and their computer screens instead of really engaging with natural food and systems and nature, it, there's this gap that is this, you know, strong desire to do that. They want to come out. So they want to see it. They want to touch it. They want to relax. They want to unplug. So you have this space. You know, you, have, you create this space on your farm where maybe they can do that. It's something that we enjoy as farmers all the time. It might be the you know, main reason we are farming. And when they come and play, they come and participate in that, you're, you're having this moment where they're really open to hearing about why you do, why you live the way you are living, why you're growing food, why it's important. And hopefully you can inspire them then, even though they're on vacation and they're having a good time, to go forward and be like, wow, that, that really impacted me. You know, I want to go support that wherever I am, or maybe I want to grow food myself. Maybe you'll want to invest in a farm. So you have this resource. It's not just making money for your farm, but you're really building this whole level of awareness and education and, you know, love for the art of far that is farming and, and, you know, caretaking land. And that's, and that's not everybody can be a farmer, but everybody can be supportive and, you know, be a part of that food system that is supporting farmers. And that's what we need more than anything. Yeah, I've been I've been spending the last couple of days in um, conversation with an artist who's working a lot on land reform issues, um, and we're just having kind of conversations back and forth about the culture of change and the uh, and you know the conversations that we have in agriculture how how similar they are to the conversations in the creative arts and really cultural production. Uh, we often assign it to specialists and scientists and, and agrochemists uh, in farming and, and to high, high powerful institutions um, of art that's really living in its own, its own hyperspace. But, in fact, such a big part of the reclaiming uh, and retraining and reconfiguration that we're all a part of has to do uh, with 
embodying a broader set of stakeholders and, uh, or, or sorry, a broader set of roles uh, just as individuals and as communities and that we have the power to do that as kind of co-producers or cultural, as a cultural team, team space uh, and that we don't have to define these categories so narrowly and then put them in, into such uh, monetary uh, or professionalized terms. One yeah, example, just to make, just make it clear, like one thing that people don't recognize a lot in, in terms of the patterns that we have uh, in our tax code is like if you're making money in your agriculture and you don't want to pay as much taxes, then you can buy more equipment um, and you can write off that equipment against your, uh, against your, 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 your income tax. And uh, similarly, if you're having a home mortgage, um, if you're having an income, you can write off your mortgage. So if there's an incentive to keep buying properties that you don't, you know, even use um, in order to be able to write off those, that mortgage. And so, again, over and over, like, noticing this example of how that tax incentive is uh, predicated on expectation that we want bigger and bigger and more and more mechanical agriculture to support building more and more tools and tractors. Um, uh, and perpetuating a speculative market in home, in home and property ownership. And, you know, what, what, okay, so what's our critique of that and what is the shape of uh, an alternative? And so it's just really, anyway, this yeah, is fun no, stuff. Yeah, no, it's true. I think that the biodynamic uh, conference that quickly followed the slow money conference that we were both at in Louisville, um, they have a really big focus on the farm as a cultural experience and as a cultural center, and that's part of biodynamic farming is that you open your farm up to the community and you, you make it a, a part. You're offering many, many community services from the farm, and I've always really resonated with that piece of, of biodynamics. I feel like the more we get into kind of the mechanistic production of, of growing beets and carrots, and, and we do all that, and money does matter, and we have to survive, and we have to pay our mortgages, but also, you know, we have to keep in mind that there's a bigger picture going on, and people are needing farming in a lot in the respect of the way they do need the arts. You know, they do need that connection to this life source and how it's expressing itself through food and, and culture, and, and, you know, it's the root of our humanity is growing food and how we eat it and prepare it and share it with others. And also a piece that you just kind of touched on was, you know, if you have extra income, if you could then go and find a cool farm to invest that income in and support somebody else <laughs> and fund another project instead of buying more equipment or, you know, I mean, there's, it kind of opens the door to lots of ways that people can take money and use it for the common good instead of, you know, either hoard it or pay taxes on it or be penalized for having it. There is... Um, this, this kind of open system, hopefully, that, you know, people will just keep investing in other farms and then that farm will be profitable and invest in the next farm and it would be a pay-it-forward, you know, kind of effect for farming, which would be really beautiful. They said that if 1% of, uh, or, you know, if Oregon took 1% of its savings and invested it back into, you know, small businesses through this law, it would be a billion dollars immediately infused into the local economy, which... You know, that would be a record-breaking historic amount of money to come to Oregon all at once and just into small businesses. And we would see that there would be funding for the political will to resist GMOs, and there would be funding for 
job creation um, around, you know, environmental concerns, and there would be funding for through taxes, all these new jobs and revenue to fund the things we care about, infrastructure schools, all these things that, we you know, Oregon has been, you know, struggling with. So it's really a way for people to say, hey, I've got this money sitting in a bank, but I could just take it out and invest it and maybe make more money by investing in any way than it I would interest from a corporate bank, and then it would just set in motion incredibly cascading waves of effects, you know, that would be beneficial for me and my entire state. It's really cool. I mean, it's it can be a very, very powerful thing. Well, you know, my mind goes straight away to Agrarian Trust and the model that we're that we're working from, which is a group called Tail de Lien in France, who managed to get group investment in a commons, a farmland commons, like 83 million uh, francs, uh, not francs, sorry, euros. And uh, really the average investment was only something like 5,000 euros, but there's so much wealth and so much engagement, uh, so many people watching, you know, watching the, the business of rural redevelopment and rural resettlement and, and, and you know, revivification, rediversification, um, community health um, issues, you know, because there's just all this, uh, all these new brains engaged, you know, and the, the amount of prosperity that can come from, from, from that engagement. And, uh, wait a minute, I was going somewhere and then there was, all this people spraying pesticides on the right and the left here in Salinas that I got distracted. <laughs> oh, um, the money. Well, another program to just talk about in Quebec, um, they, they started a social investment fund. It's $73 million, Canadian dollars, to invest in beginning farmers. Um, and so the state created an instrument of investment um, that's essentially like an FSA or whatever, but it's specifically oriented towards new startup, new farmers. And um, it's really fun to think and extrapolate forward, you know, what are all the outcomes that can, that can arise from such a commitment to, you know, building prosperity from, from the bottom. Um, yeah, in, in the U.S., you know, we're kind of, we've seen more and more that our political system is broken because there's this huge influx of corporate dollars influencing our politicians, and there. You know, it's really disheartening to be engaged with a, a system that doesn't respond to the obvious demands that people care about, you know, the environment, children. You, you know, the list goes on and on. It just seems to always kind of filter its way into the pockets of people who are paying for a certain lobby, you know, in government. It just the, the ability to not feel helpless, the ability to take a little bit of money and say, okay, I'm going to invest this in a farmer, I'm going to directly engage my money to where I think it needs to go and just start that action. You know, I think it's really empowering. I think as it picks up speed, people will really see that they don't need to be looking for the government for handouts for things they believe in. They can just fund it directly. And that's amazing. You know, that's something we haven't been able to do. It's actually been illegal to do. So the fact that, you know, these old 1930s laws are being challenged a little bit and lifted in certain states and trialed is exciting particularly for farmers who have, you know, trouble getting access to capital in general. So it's really exciting. I mean, what Quebec is doing is amazing. That's the first I've heard of it. That's so exciting. But in, I, you know, and maybe Oregon State might, you know, consider it a priority. But if you look at the U.S. government, 
you know, it's really hard to envision them doing something like that. But it could happen, you know, but it would just take so much political will to get it to happen, whereas if we just started investing ourselves and directly into those small farms, we could make it happen much, much quicker. Um, and then hopefully kind of lead by example from the bottom up of where people want to see change in our country. Right on. Well, um, two things. First of all, coming to Oregon, I'd love to see if we can get more people to hear about your work. We're doing a mixer um, near near Corvallis, in, uh, sorry, near Eugene, on March 4th at the Greenhorns Mixer. And nice. um, you can find information. I hope that maybe somebody from you, I know Farmon and Friends of Family Farmers guys are coming um, to talk about their services they provide. Um, and Janelle Orsi and I are giving a, a keynote together at the Public Interest Law Conference in Eugene uh, okay. of, uh, describing the work that we've been doing building the Agrarian Trust and this farmland commons where people can invest uh, and bequest uh, gift land and gift assets into um, a, a land holding that will, can never be sold and whose yeah. use is defined very carefully you know, in the interest of sustainable local agriculture. Um, yeah. So essentially, like, making, um, you know, a national park for, for local food. And the um, the Oregonian grangers, you know, heard about us was happening, and they about our grange tour down south, and they were like, well, we saw that you guys did, you know, 15 granges down south in California, and here's the list of granges in Oregon, and we're really interested to be a part of this conversation, and we're the right venue for these conversations to happen around land transfer and succession. And, you know, yeah. here's all our phone numbers. And, you know, to be honest, after having done 15 great, oh, I need a little break um, uh. before going back on, on Grange Tour. But so we're, we're going to go um, probably in February of next year uh, uh. up to, to visit Granges. But it's incredible how... how um, these institutions, like the Grange, um, that is founded in a time, you know, really a time before cars and electricity, really on, a, on the scale of the post office, you know, on like a postmistress gathering information, uh, the, 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 the human scale of that institution really lends itself very well to intergenerational conversations uh, and, and intimacy and trust. Uh, that that is almost like a prerequisite for so much of the work that we have to do. Absolutely, you know we're having our um, our community launch of the investment uh, law at our local Grange here, which is just five miles from my farm. And uh, we're proud members of the Grange, and we try to have every event that we can have, you know, there to kind of raise funds to put a new roof on it and keep it going and keep things farm based happening there. But there's a really yeah, I'll definitely will come and see you in March, by the way. There's a really uh, awesome, you know, connection that's kind of growing between the Grange and Farm Trust. We had, we started the Nehalem Valley Farm Trust. And one of the things I should mention is that um, the structure of this, of this uh, the way we're trying to use this investment is that we started a benefit corporation. So it's a corporation that has a designation to be for community benefit. Uh, and we gave 10% of our shares to the farm, the Nehalem Valley Farm Trust, um, and they're 
their job there is to take those 10% of our shares that are worth, you know, theoretically worth $100,000 and use that as our mechanism to not only get kind of grant-based funding through a nonprofit, but also to do the educational work around the bigger piece of what agritourism means for the rest of the farm, to connect our farm to the bigger agricultural piece and what what impact it has on the region. So, you know, you can actually invest local nonprofits and farm trusts into these, you know, entities. So ours is 10% of the shares are actually owned by the, the owners of the land themselves, the property sellers, or the older couple who are retiring. This is a common situation farmers find themselves in. Us as the younger farmers who are, you know, owning uh, most of the shares and trying to make this fundraising work and fund capitalize the project, 10% by a land trust, and then 25% of the shares being offered to the state. Uh, through the CPO to try to fundraise the, the seed money for the project. So it's a really innovative uh, structure that can include lots of players. Um, and we have to kind of rethink the corporate model, too, because corporations can embody these really cool and good uh, arrangements between players, and everybody benefits, including financially everybody benefits. But it's a way for an older farmer to trans to like maybe take shares in something and then slowly over time be bought out by the younger farmer as sweat equity or, or money is accumulated. So it's an interesting you know model for for people to check out just financially and uh, as nonprofits and granges work as well. We want to you know bring in as many players just right at the right at the actual formation of the of the business as we can. Kind of deepens the relationship from the outset. Um, so we're, we're ready to show people this model, ready to have it be funded and be successful. If people want to check it out, uh, the business is called North Fork 53. We're on uh, the North Fork of the Nehalem River, and we're right by Highway 53, which is the original Coast Highway. Um, and it's this beautiful little homestead. We put up a website so people can go check it out. And uh, if you know anybody in Oregon, <laughs> you can tell them to go check out the website and then also check out the investment offering. Um, so Right yeah. on. Click, click here to learn more, and, yep. um, you know, it's really exciting, all this bubbling up of, of innovative ideas and mojo and motivation and, and solidarity economies. Really, um, it feels so rich in this moment. I, 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 we can all be grateful, and we can take heart and stay strong, and lots of hugs to you. Right back at you, Severin. You're, you're rocking it over there. Okay, everybody, stay motivated. Keep planting seeds. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 